Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today is a former Amazonian, and uh, he launched the health and personal care category in Canada as one of the early team members. And uh, he's currently the founder and CEO of Armor, which is a full-service Amazon agency. And when he's not working, he likes hanging out with his kids, coaching baseball, organizing marathons, and others. You know, I've never seen a former Amazonian who just sits still and does nothing, always running around. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, Oscar Barbon. And welcome to the show, Oscar. Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Nick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I love the energy and the style of the uh, Amazon people. So you guys get you, you get put through the same machine and the conditioning Absolutely. machine, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, it's always, uh, it's always interesting. The crucible we get put through. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things we'll talk about is ruthless prioritization and that's something that happens you get trained within amazon and i think you're always as no amazon you're always trying to prioritize both inside your life and outside you know work and i think that's why you have us very active individuals so yeah by the way um when you join amazon uh, do you go through like a, a training yeah. program and so how long and how long is it how long yeah. is that that's a very good question. So when I started Amazon, um, they had just started to onboard basically uh, 30 to 50 people at a time. And so when I started, there was two onboarding sessions. By the time I left, there'd be 10 onboarding sessions every week, beginning at the beginning of the week. And then these people would basically go through about three to four days of uh, meeting executives, getting their badges, you know, kind of learning some parts of the culture. And then they would be dropped off in their team. So like on the third day, your manager would come and pick you up uh, from your onboarding, your corporate onboarding. And then you'd be brought into your team. And the unfortunate part, at least when I was working at Amazon, was that we would write these documents called OP1, OP2, and they helped us plan the entire year. And so in that document, you would talk about the headcount you needed and what that headcount was going to do. Well, unfortunately, by the time somebody was hired, that headcount had already been told to you know, leadership and what they were going to be do, doing, about three months of work had already been promised from that headcount. So, so many people would come into a role and they'd be like three months behind, like really like within the next two weeks, they'd have to have some deliverables uh, for the leadership. And so that, you know, and that was intentional by Amazon. I think they always wanted a to-do list that was so long that you could never get through it. So that you're always constantly prioritizing, you know, what's going to move the needle, what's going to be the big impact uh, for the business over the next, you know, month, two months, six months, you know, whatever the the scope is. So, um, and then after that, it was there was a wiki. So a lot of times, if you asked for help, people would say, "Hey, did you wiki it?" Um, and there was a lot of kind of learning, learning on the go. So you know, I wouldn't think there there wasn't as much of a formal training process uh, as other organizations. Um, and also the idea was that they were hiring what they would call fungible people. So people that could morph themselves into the particular role. Um, but, you know, I think I, the one thing I do have to say is that out of all the places I've worked in my life, 
I've never had more autonomy and I've never had more authority over the work that I did myself. Um, there were big projects, big goals, and then they'd say, go do it. And you had to figure it out. And they really let you have the latitude to figure it out and the authority. If you're like, hey, I want to do this, this, and this, they'd say, all right. You know, they'd ask a thousand questions, but after that, they'd say, go ahead, do it. Um, and so that was really powerful, uh, you know, and, you know, a powerful component of the role for sure. So, yeah, cool. So now knowing Amazon as you do, what can you tell us today for our listeners about how to have a stress-free Amazon operation? You know, I really think it comes down to learning how to fight with Amazon. You really got to figure out how to fight with them. So uh, when you fight these, uh, have these fights with Amazon, it's yeah. in all different areas. So uh, what right. kind of fights are you referring to? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I ran into this, you know, Amazon's large bureaucratic system-driven organization. And as entrepreneurs, a lot of times we need to make things happen that are not connected. And so we have to fight. Um, you know, we're used to fighting. We're used to fighting to get that extra call in front of that client, to get that little bit reduced on the product cost. You know, we're always constantly fighting. So if you take that mentality with Amazon, though, you're constantly going to be running into brick walls. Um, and so you need to learn what do you accept and work with? And what can you move forward with? And what can you push back on Amazon? So, you know, you're fighting Amazon administratively. There's administrative components that Amazon has that they want to be sure that's executed exactly the way they want it. There are fights amongst uh, legitimate good above board competition. You know, people who know how to market and people who know how to create content and know how to price and you're competing with them. You're also competing with some below the board people, you know, people who are uh, used to incentivize reviews, uh, you know, all types of crazy stuff, you know, send packages to people just to show that an order went out, even though there was nothing, it was just like a bag of seeds. Um, you know, so there's all these different types of fights that have to take place on Amazon. Um, but really understanding, you know, where, where do I need to push and where do I need to accept are kind of the biggest components of living a stressful, stress-free life with Amazon. So, uh, in in these challenges that get that you get thrown in with Amazon, uh, is there a, a core principle you can follow so that you yeah. can apply that core principle in how you are approaching that particular challenge? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think about uh, I have a I have an uncle, Uncle Jesse. Uh, and he is a, uh, he's a, a sergeant, uh, he's a master sergeant in the uh, Marines. He's a retired master sergeant in the, in the Marines. And Uncle Jesse used to have this, this uh, saying, he said, if you're in a knife fight with somebody, that knife is as much yours as it is theirs. And the idea was that, hey, if you're in this close combat, any tool can be used for or against you. Um, and the same idea is true with Amazon. So Amazon has three fundamental principles. It's winning on convenience, winning on selection, and winning on price. And Bezos proved, he said, hey, if I can win on these three things, I'm going to grow this amazing business. And that's what he did. And those principles are core to this day. So if you're thinking about what do I fight? What, is, what do I push back on Amazon? Or what do I go attack somebody else over? Or what can I defend mm -hmm. myself against? Really, you have to use those three lenses. 
how does this impact selection? How is my pricing or how does this impact pricing in the market? And then how does this impact convenience? Is this the most convenient way? Do I have it in you know, a form that's most convenient? You know, so you kind of think about those three things, pricing, convenience, selection. And if you use those three lenses, you will know where you need to really push harder to fight and where you need to accept and just accept whatever the model is and then move on so that you can move towards those components. Okay, so this this is this is great because I wanna now for those who are listening, you are going to get into the fundamentals of achieving success on Amazon. So we're yep. gonna uh, really what Amazon wants from you is really for you to be successful at the end of the day. But they want you to be successful by meeting the requirements yes. of what success looks like. Right. Right. According to Amazon. Right. Right. Since they are a trillion dollar company, I think that we should give them some credit for knowing what success looks like. Right. So, I, yeah. So therefore, uh, we're going to find out how you should structure your business in order to meet the requirements that Amazon has. So this way, you are going to not only be successful, but also you're going to breeze through all the hurdles yes. Amazon yes. puts in front of you. And right. that's what will deliver the success, uh, stress-free operation. So yes. we're going to dig into different areas that will include your merchandising, because I, that's where the selection yeah. is a big deal. Yes. And then we'll get into pricing, some strategies and, and, and competition. And then, yeah. of course, the convenience uh is, is is a big part of the customer experience so yeah uh, with that let's let's not jump in oscar so yeah. let's start with the uh, the selection part because i think that's a very important way to merchandise right yes absolutely um so when i think about selection um i think there's a couple things one i i really appreciate how you said hey amazon wants you to be successful because you're absolutely right Amazon wants you to generate revenue. They want you to spend money on marketing. They want your business to grow. And to your point, there's certain ways that that has to grow because, you know, like if you pack your thing full of, let's say you pack a shipment full of peanuts, they're going to charge you per peanut, right? Because if everybody does that, they literally have mountains of peanuts. So they, there's certain things they have to put in place because of the volume in which it's happening. So with that in mind, you know, when we think about selection, and because I work with so many different types of companies, I get to see a lot of different selection theories and ideas. And I think one of the biggest divergences you can see in apparel, where there is a huge, uh, I like to call them ASINs, but you know people call them SKUs, uh, you know, explosion. You know, if you have three colors in four sizes and two different designs, you can quickly ramp up to like 20, 25 items, unique ASINs, right? Um, each one its own color, each one its own size, each one its own design. That is a problem. Uh, and that's a problem because it is very tough to keep in stock on such a wide assortment of selection. Um, and so, you know, how do you, you know, how do you balance this, this with also then, you know, the need that Amazon has, because Amazon would like to sell one item a million times as opposed to a million items one time. And then that's what Amazon wants, but Amazon, as we said, also wants to provide the largest selection. So they're kind of, you know, like hiding some of this risk in what you assort in your selection to sellers saying, hey, put everything up. We want you to offer everything. 
That's what Amazon wants because they want a consumer to stay in their in their system. But as the owner of that inventory, that's not what you want because you don't want dollars just sitting in the in, in the warehouse that you're actually having to pay for because they're charging you long-term and short-term storage fees. Um, so there's a natural kind of tension there. Amazon wants a lot of selection. They don't want any dollars in inventory. They want your dollars in inventory and they want you to provide a large selection. So what we really look at is there's kind of two ways we look at it. First is quite literally the 80-20 rule is to be applied here. 20% of your selection is going to drive 80% of your sales and really two to three of your items, out of, I don't even care how big your selection is, two to three of your items are really going to drive almost all of your sales, you know, at least almost half your sales. So one, get in stock on those items, make sure you're in stock on those items and pay attention to the signal. So if you have a small, let's say you have a growing catalog and you have a, a growing business, well, pay attention to the signals. Whatever items are starting to move, really feed those. And the ones that aren't moving, even if you think it's the best flavor or the nicest cut or the highest quality, if the consumers aren't resonating with it, you got you have to let it go. And that's a trade-off right there. That's one of these fights. And you know, we as as entrepreneurs, we have very clear visions on what we want, but sometimes our consumers, our clients, our customers show us something else. So you need to accept that. You need to accept what you're being shown, accept what's moving quickly, push more of that. And whatever is dying, you know, put it on, you know, let it kind of be in hospice care. Maybe you can keep a little bit of inventory in, you know, make sure that you are running some ads to it just in case there is some interest there. But don't think it's going to be that you're going to have five equal items that are all driving equal amounts of revenue and they're all ascending that way. No, it's going to be two or three items that really drive it. So, Oscar, there is another interesting um, dynamic here. Uh, we're talking about variations. Uh, so, obviously, yes. there are legitimate reasons to offer variations. And I like variations because you have one parent that you drive traffic to, and then you have multiple items to offer. Yes. But uh, there's two types of variations. There is the natural variation. This is just me, okay? So this, this is not like a rule somewhere. Yeah. Uh, there's natural variations. For example, small, medium, large, yep. uh, black, white, red, blue, whatever. Yep. And then there is the value uh, oh, right. variation. Yes. And these are the packs and the bundles yes. and like that. I like more the value bundle variation rather than the natural. Yeah. So now here is the the interesting dynamic let's say that you start with mm. four variations yes. five variations well frankly at the beginning you don't know what's going to sell so right. offer, offer many now as some of those variations whether it's natural or value doesn't matter yeah. start to uh, stand out as you know the Amazon search algorithm, not yeah. the sponsor, but the natural uh, organic yep. search, search yeah. algorithm will start to favor yes. the one that's converting the best, mm -hmm. that's doing better than the others, right. which means that in your organic search results, you will see the main picture of that better performing one. Right. And then when you click on it, you will land on that one. So now, the algorithm will start to favor. Yes. It becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Where the one that gets 
better conversion, better performance, will start to do better and better. And at the same time, the others will start to deteriorate even right. further. Right. Now, tell me your thoughts yeah. about when you get to that point, you separate out yeah. and create another parent and put those underperforming variations under a different parent for the same item. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so that's a it's a great call-out. Um, so I think one component we think about, I always think about Amazon, it's always a treadmill, it's always moving, you're always evolving. So what you are today is not going to be what you are tomorrow. And so today, as you've said, maybe you're, you have all several different flavors, all variated. So it's not a value variation, but it's that awareness almost value uh, variation. That is very useful in the beginning, as you mentioned, to help get that awareness. And then as you start, as you know, as you start to see items drive, again, to your point, you're going to want to break that apart and then come back to a value variation. Now, the critical component is that where is your demand once you break up? Because if your demand is large enough on that winning that key item, it can have it can have a halo effect for your brand. And so there's we look for one, we want a couple thousand dollars a week, usually coming from an item before we say, all right, it's mature enough for it to be broken off on its own. Then the second thing is we also do a lot of advertising to get the bought with. Um, so, you know, one of my, my VPGM Anders, he loves it when the three, like, hey, usually bought with are also the other, the, our brand as well, or whatever our client's brand is. So we'll work really hard to try to create that, um, that relationship in a nine through ads and then trying to like pause conversion on the other item. So I don't know if that makes sense in that, that component, but basically we look, Hey, is this, is this item, you know, mature enough on its own? If it is, we then break it out. Once broken out, we then use marketing to try to create the relationship with the other uh, flavors, variants, sizes, whatever it may be. Um, okay. I also, the one last thing I say, I really do like, so I think about the initial search results I think about like the Coliseum where every gladiator's in there and we're all, you know, hitting each other over the heads, trying to get in front of that customer. And then once they've selected, hey, okay, that one looks interesting. They click on it. Now they're in this private walled garden of yours, right? It's not really private and it's not really walled because it's all Amazon, but no other brands, you know, they have to drive ads to get onto that detail page. And so you really can, to your point, you can start to be a little bit you're in a little bit safer space to show more of the brand to try to get more engagement with the non-moving items. But we really do, I guess, just to recap it, we like to variate across, you know, cut flavor, whatever in the beginning so that we can get awareness across the, the selection. Once items have started to show a significant amount of demand in our book, it's usually two to 3,000 a week. Then we say, all right, let's figure out what, can we separate this easily? You know, can we break this apart and then do a better value, you know, value stack um, and I also get a little bit later where that comes into play with if you're utilizing distributors or if you have to use distributors, that value offer on one ASIN is going to come really become very important to you. Uh, and then, you know, then look for Halo. Try to look to say, how can we manage a Halo by driving marketing dollars to items that maybe aren't doing as well, but are very similar and would, are, are in the same brand. So, yeah. So as far as the... As far as measuring the success of these variations, yes. What are you looking at? Are you looking at just sales? Are you looking at 
Uh, what what metrics are you looking at? Yeah. So, you know, I hate to say it, but it, it depends on what your goal is for that particular moment in time. Some of our clients' goals are at this moment create awareness. And so in that component, you know, we are we are okay with low performing ROAS and tacos that aren't, you know, standard, you know, for the industry, but where we are getting the impressions, where we are getting, you know, that awareness built. And then there's other components, other times of the year where certain clients or people want really focus on that profitability. Um, you know, and so in, in that component, then we're highly targeted towards what tacos and ROAS looks like, you know, trying to, you know, ROAS as high as possible, tacos as low as possible, um, you know, and really because, you know, that's the goal for that that particular moment. So, you know, I think the other component when thinking about, you know, how do I have this stress-free life with Amazon, it's in any life, in, in all life, you know, we have multiple responsibilities. And if you focus just on one for too long, you're, you know, your, your life becomes unbalanced. Same thing with Amazon. If you focus on one idea, like I'm only going to consider profitability. Well, you may be very profitable. Then your top line may start to decrease, you know, you may have awareness problems or you're just not growing, you know, what you need. So there is a constant kind of balancing that needs to take place. You should always be looking, you know, one, what's the next major drive time? So is there prime day, you know, that's coming up? you know, in, you know, in, in mid-July, like July 12th, probably, um, you know, is it, you know, back to school? Is it Q4? Is it, you know, Black Friday? You know, what are the drive times? And then at least kind of every six months, you should kind of be looking forward. So, okay, what do I want this to, you know, what do I want this business to look like in six months? So. Okay. Well, I was getting at the, the decision to separate a variation yeah. under performance. So, what is the what is the measurement for you to go by to say okay these three variations that you, but I I give you a real life scenario yeah I have a client and they have a fairly high ticket item okay just so that you know yep. the item costs seven hundred dollars mm. four hundred dollars okay between two different sizes yeah. Each size comes in five colors. Okay, got it. So the listing was launched with yeah. 10 variations. Right. So therefore, when you run an ad, yeah, you have to, pick, you have to doing the sponsored ads, you have to pick one of the ASINs. So yes. we pick the lower ticket item. Yep. So we drive business yeah. there. However, now it has been over six months since okay. we launched this thing. So what's happened over the last six months, some of the some of those variations kind of separated. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Now we are looking at, okay, what do we do? So do. That, that something needs to be done. So my, my, so my question specifically is, yeah. out of these 10 variations, what measurements are we looking at what kpis yeah. are we looking at in order to say okay the time has come to separate these out that's right. what specifically i was getting at so i look at revenue i look at top line revenue for this for this metric and simply because i look at it as a race as a sprint in essence between all of these items i think they all start you know in essence at the same place and then if one's just moving quicker and all I'm looking at is revenue because I want to keep it simple. I don't need to, you know, there's all these other numbers you can look at and really, you know, you can look at traffic, you look, but really where are people buying 
you know, what is what is making sense from the price, the offer and everything. And, you know, maybe the color and the cut. So if you've identified, and if, it sounds like, you know, I mean, six months is a, is a good amount of time to run, you know, obviously a year is better because you get to see the whole seasonality, but, and I don't know how seasonal the product is, but with six months, you know, you've already started to see that separation. Those two or three items that are probably the ones leading, I would say, you know, it's maybe time to to separate them out and see, you know, and I don't know if it makes sense to have a value offer with this type of product, but if there is an opportunity, that might be the way to do it. I would also look at how much inventory you have in the other items before I make that change. I would want to make sure that you have one week at most of the of these lower performing items. You want to stay in stock so there's, there's an offer, but you're really going to want to try to, you know, you don't want like 10 weeks you know, 20 weeks of inventory. If you do have that first, get it down, like, you know, price promote it, whatever you need to ch- get that into a better inventory health position. But what signals all of this is revenue. In essence, once we really start to see a couple differentiate and, you know, over at least five to six weeks of differentiation, not just one week, two weeks here or there, but it's top line revenue. And you'll see it. I mean, you'll see that there's a group, there's usually one, and then there'll be like two that are about the same, and then there'll be everybody else. Um, but yeah, usually top line revenue. Um, you know, as I said, if we're seeing, you know, about 12 K in a, in a month on an item that started at zero, um, you know, and we start, you know, let's say eight, 10 weeks in, we're starting to see like that three K a week. All right. This is starting to show some good promise and it probably needs, um, you know, some additional support. The other thing I would look at is this, you know, as you're growing your listing, you need reviews, right? And Vine can be a very good option for that and can be very candid in their reviews. And that can be another place to identify which one of these items is going to have a long history and which one is going to die out um, from the reviews, from the Vine reviews, because they're pretty honest and they'll let you know, oh, this was good. You know, this was high quality for the money. This was worth it. Or no, I don't think this was worth it. So I have something important for all my listeners. Sellers lose money on lost or damaged inventory with Amazon, which can add up to a lot over a year. Did you know that there is a way to claim all your losses? Getida is the global leader in Amazon FBA auditing and reimbursements for Amazon FBA sellers worldwide. They deliver results with no upfront costs. They get paid only when you get paid. Visit www.getida.com forward slash legends to learn more and sign up. And thanks to our friends at Getida, your first $400 in reimbursements will be free. That's www.getida.com forward slash legends. And that's www.getida.com forward slash legends. Okay, cool. Okay, so... Um, I think we've covered the selection part. Uh, say, I mean, obviously, there's so much we can yes. talk about selection, but we, uh, we're just going to put things on people's radar screen. Yes. So, um, yeah, can I add one thing selection. about selection, just as a, a general advice for, to people? So, you know, if you're in certain industries, let's say natural food or certain industries that really require a distributor, There's the problem you run into is you have to sell to this distributor. And then these distributors, they're pretty dirty. They will sell directly to Amazon. They will sell to whoever. And it's almost once they do that, it's very hard 
to identify where the product's coming from, who it went through, how it got to the end consumer. A lot of times you'll have to buy units of your own product to identify this. So one thing that we always recommend to our clients and to anybody, I recommend this to anybody on Amazon who's has to use a distributor and has something like a consumable-ish type product is to create a unique to Amazon offer that you don't sell to anybody. You never sell this product to anybody. It will, it should be, let's say, you know, let's say you have six packs and people are doing a single six pack and two six packs. So like, you know, 12, you know, maybe you offer a 12 pack, but at the cost of 10, you know, so it's slightly better value for customers. It's a unique UPC that you do not sell to anybody, nobody, nobody gets it. And then you control that offer on Amazon. And what will happen over time, if you fast forward months, is that you have a better value item and assuming your quality is good, assuming good quality, you have a better value item, you consumers will find it. And then you can start marketing to that item and you don't sell it to anybody else. So you never get undercut. And then when we talked about all those other offers, you know, like the, the value offers, that's when you can have these third-party sellers or whoever kind of come into your offer, create noise and distraction for your competitors and pricing variations for your competitors. But then when consumers come, they will identify because, you know, they, a lot of people can do math that your offer is the best. It's the highest value offer. And then that's where you convert them. So it's almost like you use everybody else's energy and work to draw attention back to your prime little offer that you don't give to anybody else. And I just want to leave that with everybody because it's that's probably the best way to balance getting into brick and mortar and really working with large distributors, but protecting your profitability, protecting, you know, your, your brand on Amazon. Well, this is such an important point. And I will give you a real life experience, which uh, has happened very recently uh, with one of my clients. Mm. Um, going back a few years, I had a, um, I had a client and um, the, the product they sold, they primarily did, they're a manufacturer and they sold to large chains, mm. uh, large yeah. cha- uh, chains like Lowe's, yep. Home Depot and others. Yeah. Um, so they said, oh, we also want to sell direct to consumers. So when they went on Amazon, they did not want to compete okay. with their distributors or these right. retailers. Right. So what they did, and they did this, by the way, totally as a, not as a strategy, but as a creative thinking. Yeah. So to speak. They created bundles. Hmm. Okay. Yes. So just so you have an idea, the item that they sold, uh, the, the single item uh, was sold for um, something like $34.95, and the bundle was about $45. Yep. Uh, or for, 45 or $49.95. Yep. So anyway, fast forward three years. The company was completely mismanaged and they overstocked because their sales spiked. And uh, I'm not going to say what the item was, but it was one of those pandemic driven items. Okay. And the leadership had no idea this was going to be temporary. They kind of got their uh, heads in the clouds and kept buying, kept buying, kept buying. Well, guess what happens? The bottom falls out right. and the orders dry out. Now they are stuck with millions of dollars of inventory. Mm. 
Guess who else is stuck with a lot of inventory? They are distributors. Right. So now the distributors started dumping. Yes. Yes. And and by the way, they also uh, had gone on Amazon by, uh, selling the single items at that mm -hmm. point because the greed. Yes. They did not yeah. maintain the discipline. And they said, okay, we are also going to sell. So yeah. now they are selling on, on Amazon the single item that's supposed to be $34.95. And uh, their bundles were still selling $45. Yeah. And when the distributors started dumping, yeah. the item price went from $34 to $6, $7. $7. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. They added insult to injury, and they started competing with those resellers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was a nightmare. Yeah. Anyway, nightmare. Uh, the good news is the situation is resolved. We've taken control. But the point of the, the example is this. Throughout this, for them, it was an Armageddon. Yeah. The, this crisis. Yeah. The bundle sales were steady. Oh. They were steady. Yeah. They had to, they had to reduce the price a little bit, but not much. Right. Because I mean, let's face it, supply and demand, right. demand goes down, there's yeah. more supply, the price will automatically need to be reduced right. a little bit. But but not not like from $34.95 to $7. They went from $45 to something like $39, something like that. But the bundles kept selling throughout yeah. this time. So uh, making these Amazon-only uh, offers definitely is a good strategy, uh, whether you're dealing with resellers or these price cutters or whatever. Um, and, and by the way, you also want to stay on top of your distribution agreement so yes. that not everybody ends up selling on Amazon. Right. So um, uh, again, it's a bit of a side thing, but what I, what I always recommend is when you have distributors, Yep. You have to put in your distribution agreement that resale, re, uh, yes. resellers, if they will sell online, need to be approved. Yes, totally. So and otherwise, they will be considered uh, unauthorized. Right. And therefore, the products that they sell will be will not be considered authentic and they'll be right. reported to Amazon. That's, how, right. that's what I recommend. What do you think? So we do... Exactly that. The other thing that we ask is that any one of our clients who sells to any customer, but particularly to distributors, we want the CEO's name. We want the CEO's email address. We want the business number in the state in which they incorporate it. And we want the state in which they incorporate it. Um, and if we can get the phone number. So we, we ask our client, hey, if somebody sends you a purchase order before you accept it, because that's when, the, that's when these distributors are most open. They're most willing to do what you want. Once they have the product in hand, they can, they lock down. I mean, they they turn into the most, you know, like economist-driven, you know, type of, you know, organizations that really work on supply, demand, and profitability. And so, but they're open when they're trying to negotiate with you. And so if you have them at the table, say, hey, I'm happy to sell to you. But anytime, you you know, when you guys buy from me, I need to know who the owner is of the company. I need to know how to get a hold of them. So I need their email address and their phone. I need to know where they're incorporated and I need their business. And the reason why we want the UBI or the universe, you know, the universal business identifier, whatever every state calls it, everything. But that's just, again, another like 
way to get a hold of this person so that when, because as you explained, the distributors, if if they, you know, if things are going well, they're going to try to take a lot of inventory. They want to try to sell those items. But we've seen it, as you said, a thousand times when things start going sideways, they just start cutting and dropping, you know, they start cutting prices right. and then right. offloading inventory. So to your point, we really like to get our hooks into um, the leadership of the distributor um, and try to get as much personal contact information for that person so that you can call them and you can email them and say, hey, we really need to do something different. The other thing, a lot of times we'll run into clients who have this scenario. And so we actually meet with those with large inventory holding positions. So there's some tools on Amazon like that you can utilize from Amazon, for instance, like Jungle. There's several that you can use to identify how much inventory third-party sellers are holding of your product. Uh, and the way that they do it is if you put in an item into a, a, a basket, let's say, you know, let's say, Nick, you're a third-party seller of my item. I could go to your offer. I could try to buy 100 units. And then Amazon, you know, and I put like 100 units in my basket and say, hey, I'd like to buy this. Amazon will kick back and say, no, you know, only 79 or 38 are available. So that's one way just manually you can check. But there's also tools that do the same. They do just exactly that. And they'll tell you how much inventory your third-party sellers are holding. And then also some of your large distributors if they're on Amazon. And then we actually have calls with them. We call them and say, look, you know, today is June 20th. We are going to end, we're going to take over this item, you know, July 20th. You have four weeks. We don't want you to cut the price. We're going to try to help you move through this inventory, you know, as quickly as possible, but without, to your point, denigrating that price down to $6. Because once a consumer sees that, they're going to definitely wait two, three months before they buy at 35 Because, you know, they're not going to want to waste money. You know, they're going to know, hey, maybe I can wait a couple of weeks to get this item. So, we try to partner in, but to your point, you really got to get your claws and your hands around uh, anybody who's holding inventory. Yeah. So, uh, Oscar, this is a very sensitive thing because you don't want to say no to somebody who's placing an order. There's a couple of things I want to yes. share with you uh, that that I've run into several times. First of all, these distributors, they, they, at the end of the day, there is a buyer that's dealing with you, right? So what that buyer wants to do is spend as much money as possible on behalf of the company right. so that he can generate as much revenue as possible. So yeah. what they do is there's two types of distributors, distributors that buy just for reselling and then distributors um, you know, that you recognize as distributors, but they, for their own sales, for example, yeah. Lowe's and Home Depot and these are, you would call distributors, but they're selling in their own stores, whether online or uh, physical store. That's yep. what they're doing. And there are also those who have franchises and the franchises are, it's there is one central buying, but it yes. goes to individual franchise owners. So there's all these different situations. And, and at the end of the day, with the exception of the ones that buy just for reselling, I would not deal with those unless it's heavily regulated. Right. Uh, but the others are where the danger is because yeah. that the agreement can protect you to a certain extent where you say, okay, this is what we've done. First of all, we'll be happy to sign a distribution agreement, but the, per the purchase orders that you place will be only for products to be sold in your own yes. physical stores or on your own website only. Yes. Selling on other marketplaces by approval only. 
So that means that even that particular distributor, you find them selling on Amazon, you now have the right to say, why are you doing that? You never uh, right. got approval, number one. Number two, operate a map policy. Yes. And uh, hold them to the map. Yep. That way, now you have another, if you like, ammunition, yes. uh, more ammunition, so to speak, to fight against them. And uh, and between the two, you now have something that you can go back yes. and, and, and protect yourself. And in the case of them reselling to franchises yeah. or anything else, then you require the franchisee to have a direct relationship yes. in order to sell. And the franchisees will be subject to the same agreement. Yeah. So these are things that you can do um, that, that we've done that so far has been successful. Yes. Uh, and uh, frankly, companies are mostly uh, decent. So they say, okay, we didn't know because they don't understand yep. that that buyer will make extra purchases just to maximize the revenue. Uh, and right, and right. They, they they will buy for reselling purposes, and then they don't care what happens right. after. And right. then you work your your whole life building a brand, and the brand takes a nosedive, and right. that's not good. So just to add to the you know minimum advertised price, the map policy, um, that I totally agree is a great tool um, to help you in your toolkit. And again, it actually falls in line with what Amazon wants with that pricing component of pricing convenience selection. So when we worked at Amazon, when I worked at Amazon, you would, as a buyer, senior buyer, we would get in as much trouble for having too much profit in an item as not enough. Um, because if it was too profitable, the idea was that the price is not sharp, that you need a sharper market price. Um, and so with that idea, Amazon... They don't want the world's lowest prices. They just want the market's most competitive price. And so if you, as the brand owner, can really hold a map, a minimum advertised price across your platform, across all your channels, Amazon will be happy to keep that price there. And, and even if you come in later and say, hey, there's a third-party distributor and we're working them out and you know we have their information here and we're trying to push them out and they're not adhering to MAP and we're really trying to make sure Amazon that you know you have the market price here uh, that's appropriate and that's competitive with all your peers. And I'll, actually, I'll get into that in a second, how Amazon rates competition. But that is a, that's a good leveraging point because that, that you're telling Amazon, hey, I'm trying to protect price here. Help me get rid of these people because they're, they're you know, not doing their job. Amazon will say, hey, regulate your, your distribution channel. But then you follow up saying, yes, we are trying to do that. Here's our notes. Can you can we still have help? And you know, those that conversation goes much better with Amazon. It's not a fight with Amazon. All of a sudden now they're on your side. They're really trying to say, all right, how can we help you maintain map? You know, like you're really trying to set a policy here and you're trying to protect it. We see that, you know, can we help you? So I'll give you one last example. And then I'll also I want to chat about how Amazon sees competition. We have a client who sells uh, pesticides and they're very popular. And unfortunately, every state has its own rules. Certain amount of pesticides can be sold together or not, depending on the state. So some states can do a three pack, some don't let individual units. As you can imagine, uh, they've had to use distributors and now there's all these crazy illegal um, offers out there. And so we've had to go to Amazon and say, hey, Amazon, look, we understand that you're going to tell us to control our supply chain. Here's what we've been trying to do. But 
you have some illegal items. And we actually had to pull in the EPA and some other people to put legal pressure on Amazon to say, yes, we will help you eliminate or control these sellers. And to our surprise, they actually, like, one day we woke up and literally like all the single units were gone. They just wiped them clean. Uh, and it was like, whoa, that's amazing, you know. But when you, it's not, a, Amazon can be a good force for you. They can help, you know, sometimes you battle them, but sometimes they can help push things through for you that normally you can't, so. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I mean, this is true. You need to, the, look, it goes back to what I learned a long time ago. Amazon business model is very simple. Provide the best customer experience. Yes. Now. That is a very loaded philosophy. Yes. Yes. And, that, and it has so many components. So we've covered yes. the selection and the pricing aspect of it. Uh, so uh, let's talk about rating competition. So share yes. with us, how does Amazon rate competition? Yeah. So Amazon has, they when I worked there, they had three bands, A band, B band, and C band. And so that was for... The volume that was for items and in terms of volume. And then in competition, they had a group that they called image competitors. And we'd say, all right, these are our, our, our image competitors. And it was Target, Walmart, Home Depot, Best Buy. And then in Canada, it was like Canadian Tire, Loblaw, London Drugs, you know, uh, in the US, CBS, Walgreens, as you can imagine. But there's certain competitors that Amazon has deemed as image competitors. And in that idea is that a consumer would go, would trust um, the product and information from that competitor as much as they would from Amazon. So what Amazon would do is these image competitors, they would want to make sure that they are meeting their price on every single offer available. And one place that this popped up um, and it was, and it really upset the, the brand owners were, was in the printing world, was in the home printing space. So you have Canon, you have uh, Brother, you have HP, um, who have these printers, right? These home printers. And they had set up relationships with brick and mortar companies. So Best Buy would run a promo on HP during week one. You know, uh, um, you know uh, Staples would run one on, you know, Brother. And then, you know, a third person would run, you know, on... Um, on the third item. And then the next week, everybody would reshuffle. So Best Buy would get the brother, you know, Staples would get the, you know, the other one, and then everybody would shuffle. So nobody in brick and mortar would ever compete in the same week on the same item with promotional pricing. <clears throat> the problem is Amazon had all those items. And Amazon considered each one of them a competitor. So every week, Amazon was, you know, matching price, matching price. And so HP and all of them were irate because this is not how they had set up the industry. You know, they had done like all these back-end couponings with Best Buy and all these places so that they made sure that the money flowed evenly. And Amazon just kept, you know, and Amazon's, hey, we're just matching the price that's in the market. So that was a huge kind of, you know, problem. And Amazon, you know, because Amazon said, these are our competitors. So as a small seller, as a, you know, or a vendor, you know, you do want to think about where is my product selling, you know, and if you get into certain um, certain stores like um, Plum or there's some like, you know, small kind of like natural retailers that to you and me may not seem like the biggest competitors. But Amazon says, you know what, 80 percent of their selection are, you know, is 80 are 80 percent of our top sellers. So we want to make sure that we're matching. So that is one thing to keep an eye, keep an eye on um, image competitors on an A band item. 
So an item that has high volume, that's being scraped multiple times an hour, um, 10, 12, 15 times an hour. They're going out to other places and scraping, 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 looking for pricing. Um, I had to because we didn't have uh, that capability in Canada at the time. For six months, every day, I had to track the diaper prices across 50 diapers. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, didn't matter. Um, and Canada does this thing where uh, once a month they give families um, a certain governmental credit for the number of kids you have. We called it the baby bonus. And so all the retailers try to promote to that baby bonus to get the parent in. So diapers and milk and all those things really get pushed down during that week so that you get that baby bonus dollars into the retailer. So I was having to track all that because we didn't have it automated at the time. Um, and we would adjust as soon as we saw papers, you know, pull-ups going down by, you know, 30%, boom, within minutes, I was making sure that we were matching that. And now it's all automated. So just something to keep in mind with Amazon. And then the B items get like at least multiple times a week. And then the C items, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, you know, those are much slower moving items. They're just not as uh, important to Amazon. So and and what makes something an A item or versus B item or C item? Um, purely volume of sales. Um, so basically the highest volume items, the items that are probably in the top five, 10% uh, of the catalog in terms of sales over the trailing 30 days uh, and probably trailing uh, 90 days. So those two windows, um, you know, if it, and most of the time, you know, if it's it was already there, right? Like the mega pack for the size four diapers, that's the most common size for kids. It's the largest pack. You know, it's going to be the top seller. But in essence, it's kind of that top five to 10% of the catalog that in terms of revenue, in terms of top line revenue, um, that they're monitoring and trying to uh, make sure that they're matching up. And of course, an item that's a C item can become a B or an A and the A yes. can become B or C, right? So totally. specific criteria to say, okay, this is now in the e A category or B category, C category. So, yeah, so Amazon's a lot of driven by Amazon system. So, um, you know, I wish I had more perspective, but it definitely, anytime I saw it, it's always aligned to revenue. You know, the C category was basically like, you know, that other kind of like 50% of the catalog, because, you know, there's a long tail, right? I mean, there's this infinite yeah. tail. Um, and so that is, you know, that's kind of, and also this is only on items that Amazon controls pricing. So this is actually another thing I want to mention on Amazon is that, we all go onto the same track. We all kind of go into the same arena. And some of us like P&G and Unilever, they have billion dollars to spend. They have Formula F1 engineering teams, you know, working on their stuff. And they're doing all this price, you know, monitoring and adjustments and all these things. While, you know, other organizations, smaller ones that are developing and coming together, it just may be two people in a bike pump, you know, sitting on the side of the road trying to compete. And so, you may not have the ability to change these prices as quickly as somebody else or identify fluctuations in demand uh, to be able to do this. So that's, that's again, is this imbalance of, of what's on the platform, you know, and, and picking your fights, you know, figuring out where you're going to try to fight and where you just have to accept and move on. Yeah. Well, that's a great line to end the conversation. Uh, I should say the business conversation, because we've got, uh, I want to get into uh, my favorite part of the, the show now but um yeah i mean you just need to pick the fights pick the right yeah. fights and then make sure that amazon wants you uh, to be successful yes by playing according to their rules yes 
And if you play according to their rules, you'll be successful. And that means offer value. Yes. And then and stay on top of your your operation. And then uh, make sure that customer is customer customer comes first, right? Right. Right. And um, anything and and think about anything that you want. Amazon is doing thousands and thousands of it per hour. Right. So. You know, your requests, your emails are not being looked at by the same person every time. And and so that's why there are some inconsistencies, but uh, something to keep in mind. So, Oscar, uh, this is great. We can talk about Amazon, of course, uh, for hours. So let's now get to know you a little bit. So tell us about yourself. um, Where do you live and where did you grow up? And then bring us... Uh, give, share with us some of your life experiences. Totally. So I actually live right now where I grew up. Uh, I spent a 20-year hiatus in two different locations since then. But I, I, I uh, was born and raised in, in Michigan, in Southeast Michigan. Uh, and I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the University of Michigan is. And uh, I grew up here. Both my parents are professors. Um, you know, and, and being a professor is a lot like being an entrepreneur. Um, you have to have an idea. You have to convince people of this idea. You sometimes have to get money. You have to execute. You have to show your results. Um, a lot of times your schedule is kind of as you make it. And so growing up, I, w- I remember I would go to the sleep to the sound of my dad writing and typing, and I would wake up to the sound of him writing and typing. And he would have his students come to our house to like do, you know, to have meetings. I saw him travel all the time. So I think the idea of being able to manage your time to your goals uh, was very much visible to me uh, as a young child. And then what's different though, because, you know, both my parents are psychologists and uh, my father was in the seminarian for 13 years. My mom was a nun. So they're very religious and, and they like giving to the community. And I like, I definitely like giving to the community, but I'm a little bit more financial or, or economic driven uh, than I'd say the rest of my family. Um, and so like, I remember as a four-year-old, we had these little quartz stones that were like all around the outside of our house for like drainage. So I would like, collect them, wash them, and then like walk to my neighbors and try to sell stones door to door. Or like, um, you know, I used to collect baseball cards and never, not because I liked the sport per se, um, yes, I thought, you know, I thought certain players were amazing, right? Bo Jackson's amazing or whatever, but why I was collecting them was cause I had a little booklet and the booklet would tell me how much each one was worth. And like, it was like a lottery almost. Like I felt like I was like, I would go in, get my pack, cut it open and then see like, okay, how much had I made? You know? And so, you know, that was just this like. Where made... do you think that came from? I mean, why, why yeah. did you feel that you, uh, you had to pay more attention to the economics of it? Yeah, I think. I, so I think I really like the idea of things growing on their own. And so sometimes that's like, so I'm an engineer by education. I'm a process engineer. I went to Michigan for industrial, industrial and operations engineering and very much process. Like, hey, I set up certain things. And then as long as we follow those things, this outcome will happen. This like good outcome. And so I felt the same with like these cards. Like I'd buy a card and because of time or whatever, you know, it would grow in value. And I didn't have to do much to do that. I just had to hold on to it. And I, I guess I found that incredible. Um, also convincing people of things. I love doing that. Um, so you kind of combine like this idea of like, I like processes. I like the idea of things growing on their own if set up in the right way. Um, and then I also like engaging with people and seeing if I can convince them. 
uh, of my idea. Um, I just find it a thrill, you know, and um, I don't know. I, I, maybe there's, you know, there's different components in that, you know, so. Well, so uh, interesting. So being able to convince people, what that's what your your, your father did, right? Because right. he, was, he was lecturing, yes. he was teaching people and, and uh, so did you actually see your father in action, you know, lecturing? Yes, a lot. Um, I have sat on so many dissertation committees, not because I was a member, but because my dad needed, you know, he had he had to take care of me and he had to sit there. So he'd be like, hey, just sit on the corner, here's some paper, draw. So I'd listen to these people argue, you know, <laughs> their dissertations, you know, and so I saw him work that way. I would see my mom work a lot because she was a so I end, I ended up going to Michigan for uh, for college, and she was an associate dean there. So I would see her. We would catch lunch together, um, you know. And what was interesting is her and I we had different last names, um, and we don't. I don't think you would necessarily if you knew we we're related. Yeah, you could. Oh, I could see it. But if you're just two random people on the campus, I don't think you'd really think we were related. And so sometimes she would hear things about me, and you know, it was just it was an interesting dynamic. That's for sure. Um, you know, on on the campus, so. So you know, I, this is this is a fascinating thing for me to hear because here you are, you were a little kid sitting in a classroom, yeah. watching your father give lecture on psychology. Yes, and of course, you know, this is not like physics or chemistry where you're right. solving. This right. is all all uh, opinion. Yes, yes. So and then, of course, with those opinions. He is convincing people to buy yeah. into the idea, uh, which will basically form the rest of their thinking. Yeah, you're right. And, and then you were observing this as a kid. Yes. yes. And uh, well, and and that now, as a result, you now love convincing people. Right. And so you, you know, must be a great debater then. <laughs> I don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I think, ask my wife. She may, you know, she may have a different uh, opinion on that. Uh, I may be tenacious and maybe not let go of something. My sister, she's a lawyer uh, by education. She was a lawyer for practicing for 10 years. Then that wasn't enough. And she decided to get a PhD. So, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, the academic and uh, rigor and arguments that happen in our family. I actually, I sent my sister a business plan because I was thinking of this business plan to address elder care. And uh, she sent me, she sends me back a text message. She's like, did you write this business plan? I said, yes, I did. And she's like, I'll give you 10 reasons why it's not going to work. Well, <laughs> so- lawyers always do that. So, you know, one, like- one, of my, one of my best friends, uh, actually, there is a, there is a book called Happiness Advantage. Okay. It's by a gentleman called Sean Aker, A-C-H-O-R. And Sean, S-H-A-W-N. Sean Aker is, uh, he was born and raised in Waco, Texas. Okay. And uh, to everybody's surprise, he gets into Princeton. Guess what department? Psychology. Okay. So uh, anyway, he's a very entertaining guy. I urge everybody to go look him up and read his book called Happiness Advantage. What he says is we are conditioned to index our happiness to our success. So that, and, and then our success usually looks like getting this job, getting this company, selling this company, building this, whatever the case may be. But guess what? Those goals shift all the time. Mm. And by the time you achieve one, right. you've got something else. So therefore success 
never comes. Right. And as a result, happiness never comes. Right. You're constantly searching. So he says, you have to put it the other way around. In other words, you have to make yourself, mm -hmm. uh, the, the goal is to be happy. Happiness will then bring success. Right. The point of the conversation is, he says, uh, one of the ways to be happy is to look for the positive, focus mm -hmm. on the positive, right? So be uh, grateful for what you have and things like that. Now, right. lawyers are conditioned and trained yes. methodically to always look for the negative. Right. right. And therefore, they are the most depressed yes. group of people right. in the society. Right. So because their job is to look for the contingencies, right? Yes. yes. So, uh, so when I just heard you say, oh, my sister, I'll give you 10 reasons. They are conditioned and trained to look for the negative. And that's right. why they all miserable. Right. You know, it was, uh, when she brought that up, I, I thought to myself, said, why, why does she need to do this? Because as an entrepreneur, when you have an idea and you bring it out to the world, there's a million different things that will cause it to die. Right. And so, you know, I was like, why did, cause like, and that's natural. There's natural for that. And I was, I was like, why does she do this? And I find my finance people do the same thing. And then what I realized was that in legal and finance frameworks, a lot of what they've created are mental models and these human structures and there's no natural decay in those human structures unlike you know if i put a piece of metal out outside over time it will it will decay it'll start to fall apart these ideas if you have an idea and you don't do anything to it it'll stay there you know just the way it is and so maybe they need to be that natural decay you know that's their training is to tear apart that way to cause decay so that things can be rebuilt better later but i i find it very uh frustrating and at the at the wrong time of trying to launch an idea it can kill it you know i think there's a right time for that those those ideas and and messaging and then there's other times where you need to have a little bit of faith and hope and you know see what you can connect well listen the whole world that uh, there's a documentary that uh, is available on history channel called the man who built america oh yeah so yes uh, it's, it's a great documentary and it's the story of how J.P. Morgan, uh, Rockefeller, and Carnegie, and Vanderbilt did their thing. And yeah. at the end of the day, it's not the mechanics. Mm. It's the vision. It's yes. the idea. That's what generates wealth. And that's what needs to be supported more. Uh, however, all those ideas, vision. And, and, and whatever the, the case may be, need the finance people, right. need the right. lawyers. Right. Fortunately, what happens is the, there is a, a balance. And then, in fact, uh, one of the politicians a uh, long time ago said something. He said, uh, we all, our body needs to be strong in order yeah. to carry ourselves. But there are also parasites that are constantly threatening yeah. our health. Right. He says, the thing is, some of those parasites are useful. Right. You just want to make sure that they don't get too strong because right. they get strong at the expense of your health. Got it. So they parasites are necessary, yeah. uh, but they need to be strong enough 
to stay healthy, yeah. but also weak enough to allow you to be healthy enough. So um, I don't, I'm not putting analogy for lawyers and finance people as parasites. That's not the case. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what I'm getting at is there has to be a balance between yeah. regulating the vision yeah. and allowing the vision to prosper. Because at the end of the day, guess what? You can regulate and calculate all day long when things are going south. Yes. Guess what gets us out? It's a vision right. and it's courage. Yes. And and ultimately that's what uh, America was founded on, right? Yeah. So uh, it, it's uh, we kind of lose uh, lose sight of it uh, from time to time, but uh, it's an interesting uh, interesting situation. Yeah. I, I I tell you, I would have loved to be sitting with you in your father's uh, class. Oh yeah. <laughs> such a blast a kicker is that he's a child psychologist so all these people were studying oh child psychology <laughs> cool cool so oscar it's a great i mean uh, philosophical now i can see why you and i can talk for us oh. <laughs> so um uh, share with us your contact information how can yes. people reach so people can reach me at Oscar, so just my first name, O-S-C-A-R, and then at GetArmor, G-E-T-A-R-M-R.com. Uh, and you can go to our website, uh, GetArmor.com. Also, we're having a special um, offer, uh, just Nick, just for your viewers. So they can, we have a contact us. They can say, hey, Nick sent me or, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I saw you on the, uh, the Amazon Legends podcast. And in that offer, uh, what we will do is, um, you know, one of the things we mentioned is that Amazon wants you to do well. Um, one thing they're not good at is returning funds to you. So as part of the customer experience, they will accept a lot of returns and refunds from end consumers. Well, when they do that, they actually need to refund you product cost and some of the fees that they've taken. They never, they rarely do that. And so there's a certain tool that we have. We can set it up totally risk-free, doesn't cost anybody a dollar, but it claws back about 3% of your revenue um, that we've seen. So this year already, over half a million dollars clawed back from our clients. Some of our clients are like, is this legal? And it's like, yeah, not only is it legal, it's your money that Amazon should have returned to you, you know, probably two years ago. So we'll set that up. We'll get that running for people. Uh, and then we'll also do uh, an audit. We have a, um, we have a full-blown audit. So we're not going to do the full-blown audit, but we have a kind of a micro audit um, that we can do to help people get a better understanding of their operational standpoint, their pricing standpoint, and some of their marketing standpoint, and then a couple of recommendations that we have to, to kind of get them Great. in a better position. Great. Thank you, Oscar. Uh, I'm sure people will take you up on it. So uh, go check out uh, Get Armor, uh, G-E-T-I-A-R-M-R.com. And uh, Oscar is a great guy, as you've heard. So uh, I'm sure he will, he will do wonders for you. So thank you, Oscar, for being here. Thank you, Nick. This was awesome. Before we wrap up, don't forget to visit www.getida.com forward slash legends to learn more and sign up to claim money for your lost or damaged inventory with Amazon. Your first $400 in reimbursements will be free. www.getida.com forward slash legends and that's www.getida.com forward slash legends. And this brings us to the end of another episode, and I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode, and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.